As we entered this new year, we did so with a new theme, and that theme uh, is one. And, and with that theme, something we wanted to emphasize was the singularity of truth. And so we found ourselves journeying back to the book of Genesis, because Genesis is a book of beginnings. And in the book of Genesis, we, we discover the origins of such things as time and relationships and sin, salvation, and covenant. And, and so what we want to do with this series on the front end of the year is spend some time in the first book of the Bible, its first 11 chapters, and rediscover the basis, the roots of our theology, of our beliefs, of our faith system. Last week, our study was focused on Genesis chapter 1 and what we could learn from that one week of creation. Our study this week will take us to Genesis chapter 2, and we'll be focused on the theological roots of marriage, because Genesis chapter 2 presents the beginnings of the one flesh institution. So if you're not there already, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 2, and we'll dive into that in a minute. But I want to start with some marriage definitions. Sometimes it really helps us to define things. And in my research, I've come across some really great definitions of marriage. Let me start with this one. Marriage is a relationship in which one is always right and the other is the husband. <laughs> marriage is finding that one special person that you want to annoy for the rest of your life. Being married means mostly shouting what from other rooms. I like this one, and, and this one rings true for our family. Marriage is when you agree to spend the rest of your life sleeping in a room that is too warm beside of someone who is sleeping in a room that is too cold. And I got this next one from a preacher. I really like his definition. It might be the most accurate definition of marriage ever. Marriage is the union of one sinner to another sinner for the purpose of producing little sinnerlings. <laughs> you can find all kinds of definitions of marriage. And these, these definitions are intended to be funny, maybe even possess a little bit of truth to them. But we need to be careful when it comes to defining marriage. Because we live in a culture that is constantly redefining it. Our culture has redefined marriage by embracing cohabitation. Our culture has redefined marriage by treating divorce as normal. Our culture has redefined marriage by legalizing same-sex marriages. But just because society has changed its definition of marriage doesn't mean that we as Christians can or should change ours. As Christians, we... We have to have a theology of marriage that is consistent with its design by God. In other words, we need to stick to God's definition of marriage. But, but what is God's definition of marriage? That will be the focus of our lesson today. Defining marriage on God's terms. And so we're going to appeal to Genesis chapter 2. And what we can infer from that text, because that's the origin, the beginnings of marriage. And when we look at Genesis chapter 2, the first thing that stands out to me regarding marriage and its definition is that marriage is a permanent union. Now, 
I know there are a number of people sitting among us who have experienced marriages that failed to be permanent. And to those who have experienced the pain and difficulty of divorce, I just want you to know I'm sorry you went through that. That was never God's intent nor God's design. And I want you to know that it's not my desire with this point to shame you for being divorced or to judge your particular situation or even to condemn you. It's simply my desire to present God's standards when it comes to this sacred relationship. I I like the way one preacher said it. He said, if we look down on divorced people, that would be heartless. But if we don't talk about marriage, that would be faithless. And so let's talk about permanency in marriage for just a moment. Permanency is and always will be God's ideal for marriage. Such is evident from the very first union Because in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The Hebrew term translated hold fast, or united, or joined, or cleave, depending on the translation you're reading, that word means to stick or adhere to in modern Hebrew. To adhere to or to stick to. In fact, the noun form of this word in modern Hebrew is the Hebrew term for glue. As a result, it connotes the idea of loyalty and devotion. So God's design of marriage is for a husband and a wife to be so committed to each other that it is as as if they are glued together. That's why Jesus declared in Mark chapter 10 and verse 9, What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And that's why Paul, appealing to the Lord as the basis of his instructions, wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 and 11. He instructed the wife, saying, You should not separate from your husband, and instructed the husband, saying, You should not divorce his wife. And it's important to note that no other human institution, no other human relationship requires permanency like this. Children will leave the home. Siblings will go their separate ways. No other human relationship has this expectation of permanence. Husband and husbands and wives are called to a relationship that never dissolves. At least that was God's ideal. And as you may already know, Jesus identified one exception to the expectation of permanency when he said this in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, And I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus gave an exception clause. He made one exception. But it should be noted that the Gospels emphasize the expectation rather than the exception. Matthew is the only Gospel to mention the exception clause, and he does it twice here, once in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, but also in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 32. And I think that's intentional. I think it's so that we don't assume that this exception is an aberration that it is intentionally there, it's present twice in his gospel, so that we know that Jesus said it, so that we know that Jesus gave it, so that we know that it exists. But it's very fascinating to me that the other gospels, particularly Mark and Luke, which 
also have statements about marriage and divorce, very similar to Matthew's. But in Mark and Luke, there is no exception clause. No exception is ever given in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. And I think that too is intentional. I think that Mark and Luke don't have the exception clause so that we don't make the exception the emphasis. Because God's ideal was and is for there to never be a need for divorce. God's desire has always been and will always be for our attention to be on the expectation rather than the exception. So in God's definition of marriage, it starts with this understanding that it is a permanent union. But if we continue focusing here on the origin of marriage, we'll also have to concede that in God's definition of marriage, it's a permanent union between one man and one woman. You know, we used to not have to make this statement. We used to not have to provide this clarification about marriage. But in today's culture, the scope of marriage has been broadened to include same-sex couples. So now, when we talk about God's design for marriage, we have to specifically acknowledge that he designed marriage to be a union between a man and a woman. And here's how we know that. You're there in Genesis chapter 2, back up to verse 18. And you'll see that God recognized it was not good for man to be alone. And so he decided to create a helper for man. And that God-designed helper was a woman rather than another man, which indicates that God designed the female gender to fulfill the needs of the male gender. And then only after he created woman did he arrange the first marriage, which indicates that his original design was for heterosexual couples to be married. And if we look ahead into the Gospel of Mark, to the 10th chapter where Jesus addresses the subject of marriage and divorce at the re- at following a question posed to him by the Pharisees. Look at what he says, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus quotes from a couple of passages in Genesis here. You may recognize the uh, verse 7 where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. We read that just a moment ago. But before he quotes from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, he quotes from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 that phrase that appears in verse 6, God made them male and female. See, by combining these two statements, Jesus indicated that God intentionally created genders for the marriage relationship. And by referencing the gender specificity of marriage as male and female, Jesus identified the circumstances under which two individuals could enter into that union. And the point is this, that in God's design of marriage, he specifically emphasized heterosexuality to the exclusion of homosexuality. And he defined marriage as a union between one man and one woman. So regardless of how our culture or our government may define marriage, 
we must defend, we must promote, and we must adhere to God's definition of marriage. Because we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven first and foremost. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. There we go. God's definition of marriage doesn't end there. Because as we continue to look at Genesis chapter 2, we also find out that God defined marriage as a relationship between a, as, as a husband and wife's primary human relationship. Going back to that Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 passage, which is so prominent today, if you haven't noticed, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, did Adam have a father or a mother? No. Did Eve have a family of origin? No. Then why is this text, why is this statement here at this juncture in the story? You have a man and a woman who have no family background, who were brought into the world as is. Why make a reference here to leaving and cleaving, as we sometimes call it? Why not wait until Abraham? Why not wait until that story where, where, where God's chosen individual is instructed to leave his home and go to the promised land? Why not wait till then to bring this up? Why do it here? Maybe the reason God talks about leaving and cleaving in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 is because he wanted future generations to understand that when you enter into a husband and wife relationship like Adam and Eve did, the expectation is that your relationship with your spouse will have precedence over every other relationship you possess. See, God's emphasis on the marital relationship means that as a husband or wife, your relationship with your spouse must not be neglected in favor of a relationship with anyone else. And so that means that your relationship with your spouse must be more important than your relationship with your buddies, men, and your girlfriends, women. It means that your relationship with your spouse must be more important than your relationship with your own parents. It means that your relationship with your spouse must be more important than your relationship with your kids. I'm not saying that you should neglect the other relationships in your life, but that you should protect the relationship with your spouse. And I think that importance of the marital relationship, that primacy of the marital relationship really is expounded upon in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you'll look there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, particularly down at starting at verse 32, going through verse 35. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 32. Paul provides some instructions for husbands and wives. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. 
in this text, Paul is instructing those who are single. He's telling them, hey, you've got a blessing. You can give all of your attention to the Lord. Because once you get married, some of your attention has to be given to your spouse. Your interests are going to have to be somewhat divided. He's saying that when you get married, you're accepting a, a call into what one preacher referred to as the please my mate ministry. You have that responsibility moving forward. And when you accept that responsibility, you are not only concerned about how to please the Lord from now on, but you're also concerned with how to please your spouse. And here's what I find so significant about that. In this text, Paul admits that this responsibility to focus on the needs of your mate is going to infringe upon your ability to focus all of your attention on the Lord. He actually used the phrase regarding husbands that their interests are divided. In what other context is it okay for me as a Christian to divide my interests to divide my focus, to divide my attention away from the Lord, and it be okay. Name one. This is the only relationship in all of Scripture that is not criticized for giving some attention to someone else other than the Lord. That's how important the marital relationship is. Have you ever thought about that? Paul gave the okay for your interests to be divided. Now, he's not saying, hey, give more attention to your spouse than to the Lord. He's not saying give attention to your spouse instead of the Lord. He's saying in the context of giving your attention to the Lord, you need to give some of that attention to your spouse too because that's how important that relationship is. It is the primary human relationship of a husband or a wife. And it should be treated as such. That's part of God's definition as well. But we'd be amiss if we didn't look for more of this definition in Genesis chapter 2. And one more thing we have to acknowledge is that in Genesis chapter 2, God defined marriage as the only authorized means of physical intimacy. Now, most of you already know where I'm going with this, and I'm going to be as sensitive to our younger audience members as I can while I address it. But if I don't address it, we're doing an injustice to our young people. Because you know where they're hearing it at. So going back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. After installing or initiating the first marriage, God indicated that it is within this relationship that a sexual relationship was permitted. That's what the concept of one flesh is referring to. God intentionally used the Hebrew word for flesh in this passage to emphasize the physical aspect of the married couple's relationship. If he intended to emphasize the spiritual aspect of their relationship, he could have used the word soul. If he intended to emphasize the communication aspect of this relationship, I'm certain there's another word he could have used. But he chose flesh for a reason. He wanted to convey the importance of the physical relationship between husbands and wives. And since the one flesh concept is linked 
with the leaving and cleaving principle for marriage, we can conclude that God intends for this physically intimate relationship to exist only within the bounds of marriage. And this is supported by Paul's use of one flesh in a text he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, where he says, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. What's Paul saying? He's saying one flesh is equated to a sexual relationship. And if you engage in that with somebody else, you're engaging in something that should only be relegated to the marriage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is the same text that leads us up to verse 18. Flee sexual immorality because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then just a couple of verses after that, really four verses or so after this very passage, we enter the text of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we don't talk much about the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I found only one sermon I've ever done where I talked about the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Today we'll make it two. Look at those verses with me. We'll actually do verse 2 through 5. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul's instructions regarding this physically intimate relationship indicate that it is limited to the marital relationship. But Paul takes it a step further and indicates that it is an expectation of the marital relationship because it serves as a preventative for sexual immorality. So Paul's overarching point is that if you need such physical fulfillment, then you need to get married because it's the only relationship in which you're permitted by God to engage in such an intimate experience. And if you're married, there is a responsibility here. There's a responsibility to provide that fulfillment for one another. Here's the point. Marriage is the only relationship in which this type of intimacy is authorized by God. And while this portion of the sermon may create some uncomfortable conversations for you parents with your children, it's an essential component of God's definition that we must present because culture for centuries has been promoting sex outside of marriage and we need to put it back in its proper context. God defined marriage as the only authorized means of physical intimacy. But there's one last thing we need to recognize about marriage. God defined marriage as a source of spiritual support. Before I make this point, it needs to be said that God doesn't expect everybody to get married. Both Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 and Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 refer to singleness as a gift. So just because you're single doesn't mean you are incomplete or inferior in comparison to the married person. Let's not forget that the only perfect person to ever walk this earth did so for 30-something years without ever getting married. 
But for those of you who are married and who are wanting to get married, realize this. When God created Adam and Eve and instituted the first marriage, he did so with the intent of both parties fulfilling a role that would spiritually benefit each other. Eve enters the story as the remedy for Adam's aloneness, a condition that God identified as not good in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. Throughout the Bible, people have repeatedly been at their spiritual weakest when they were alone. Elijah experienced that when he thought he was the only prophet left who served the Lord. He had some weak moments. When was Jesus specifically targeted by Satan the hardest? When he was alone for those 40 days out in the wilderness. It's when we're alone that we tend to be the most vulnerable. And Eve is brought into the storyline as a helper for Adam who would provide spiritual support for him. She was made to make him whole. You have to remember that Adam was created out of the dirt in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 2, but Eve was created out of Adam in verse 21. God formed Eve from Adam's rib, making him incomplete anatomically, but more importantly, incomplete metaphorically, at least until she joined him. She completed him. And while Eve was given the role of helper, Adam was given the role of spiritual leader. This is evident from the fact that Adam functioned as the primary communicator with God. He was the one who received the instructions regarding what fruit could be eaten and what fruit could not be eaten prior to Eve's creation. So he became the one communicating those policies, those rules, those commands. And he was the one God initially called for when he came searching for them in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 9. And he's the one who's criticized by God for having listened to the voice of his spouse rather than the voice of God in verse 17 of Genesis chapter 3. The point is that throughout the creation account, throughout the Garden of Eden account, throughout the storyline of Adam and Eve, Adam is always the one who's primarily in communication with the Lord because God intended for him to be the spiritual leader. And so God assigned the first wife with the task of providing spiritual support for her husband, and he assigned the first husband the task of providing spiritual leadership for his wife, but unfortunately they both failed miserably at their God-given roles. Eve failed to provide spiritual support when after eating the forbidden fruit, she gave some to her husband, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. And Adam failed to provide spiritual leadership when despite being with her when she was tempted, he did not intervene. See, the Bible indicates that we were intentionally designed to help each other be pleasing to God. Or to say it another way, we were created to help each other remain in the presence of the Creator. And Adam and Eve failed to do that for each other. I want to take you back to 1 Corinthians 7 one last time. I want you to notice Verse 16 in particular, but in the lead up to verse 16, you have verse 12 and 13, where Paul instructs Christian husbands and wives not to separate from their unbelieving spouses. And that leads to verse 16, where he explains why. 
He says, for, you, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And the implication of that passage is that the ultimate goal of marital relationship is to help one another get to heaven. That's really the primary objective here. To be so in union with each other that we not only fulfill each other's physical needs and emotional needs, but spiritual needs as well, that we help each other get to heaven. That's the primary objective here. That was the benefit of God adding Eve to the picture in the Garden of Eden, to help Adam. That's what God intended for the first marriage from the very beginning. But even we fell like Adam and Eve did in that regard. So let me paint this picture for you one last time. Here's the ultimate definition of marriage from the book of Genesis, from the very first marriage. God defined marriage as a permanent union between one man and one woman that would be their primary human relationship, their only authorized means of physical intimacy, and a source of spiritual support. That could be our definition based on God's parameters in Genesis chapter 2. But unfortunately, it's a very endangered definition. Pictured on the screen right now is the Perdido Key Beach Mouse. Now you may not be too familiar with this mouse, but I am, because Perdido Key is a barrier island just outside of Pensacola, Florida. Beautiful white sandy beaches that connect with Orange Beach and Gulf Shores along the Alabama Gulf Coast. Wonderful place to vacation. In fact, we were there just this past summer. But that beach mouse is a nuisance to a lot of people. Not in the sense of normal rodents, though. You see, the pretty little key beach mouse is not, um, he's not a nuisance going through your trash or invading your home like the mice you might find around here. He lives in the dunes along the beach. His food source is primarily fruits and seeds from the plants that grow on the sand dunes. He's not interested in your garbage. But he is an endangered species because of all the condominiums built down there. And so nowadays, if you want to build something along the Gulf Coast Beach in that region between Gulf Shores and Perdido Key, You've got to go through all of these studies to make sure you're not endangering this guy's habitat. This rodent determines whether or not you get to build your condominium. They even have like tunnels underneath the road so this guy can get back and, cross, back and forth across the major highway there without getting run over. But you know what's really spectacular about this guy? The Perdido Key Beach Mouse is a monogamous species, meaning they mate for life. Only 3% of mammals mate for life. 3% mate for life. That includes, or should include, humans. This guy is an endangered species that mates for life. And if we're not careful, God's definition of marriage will be extinct one day too. If we don't uphold it, if we don't live by it, if we don't stand for it. 
This morning we were reminded of that one flesh institution from Genesis chapter 2. Because it's the basis of our understanding of marriage. It is my prayer that my marriage will greater reflect that definition. And it's my prayer that your marriage will greater reflect that definition. It's my prayer that those of you who will get married in the near future, sorry, will reflect that definition. And it's my prayer for those of you who have experienced the challenges, the brokenness, that hurt that comes when that definition is not upheld. It's my prayer that those wounds heal. And it's my prayer that as the body of Christ here, we'll care for you just like those healthy marriages that persist. That you'll never be overlooked. That you'll always be welcome. And you'll always feel the love that maybe you didn't at times in the past. This morning we're gathered here as a family that is that does have the objective of helping one another get to heaven. And if there's anything you need to do today in response to this lesson or in response to what's going on in your life to ensure that you are on the right path to be there one day, then we invite you to come. All together we stand and sing.